Let's get into it then. All right. Awesome sauce. I ask that the gods and goddesses of our respective paths bless this circle so that we may be free and protected within this space. And if you have this one word, pagan or paganism. For the pagan community. Exactly. Right. The, the big umbrella. And that was fucking fantastic. Of the podcast ever. We're three pagans. Exactly. We're three pagans. And a cat. And may the works this day of be of the highest good for all present and those listening. So mote it be. The circle is cast. Oh, we're live. Hey, hey. Michigan Pagan Fest live. Day two. Part two, I think. Part something. Part something. Stop trying well, to label the parts. All right. Sorry. <laughs> and we're here with Oberon Osiris, who yes. we're going to ask you to tell the people who you are, who you are, what you do, all How that you stuff. There. Thank you. First of all, thank you very much for letting me be here. Yes. It's wonderful to be here at Michigan wow. Pagan Fest. I am basically a 63-year-old, very long-time witch. Uh, I probably discovered Wicca when I was 12 in Chicago. I was visiting with some relatives who were, oh, maybe they had a few mystical connections. But I read this book called Diary of a Witch in 1968 by Sybil Leak, who was one of the most famous uh, British witches after Gerald Gardner. And I read this book as a 12-year-old, and I said, that's me. And pretty much everything proceeded from that. I discovered tarot cards and became quite a tarot card reader and eventually formed my own coven after studying with other groups. And in the late 80s, uh, I was kind of instrumental in getting some of the Detroit area things going. I was an assistant to the high priest of the Dream Grove of the Sacred Moon, which ran for about four or five years, 1987 to 91. And as an assistant, I, I helped out mostly with some database issues. Believe it or not, Back then, I was a techno-witch. <laughs> now I'm more like a Luddite. <laughs> Some of this stuff is like awesome and different and a little bit challenging to me. But I helped them out with their database issues and then eventually helped out a little bit with rituals. And uh, from there, I moved on to other things. I founded a newsletter called Crow's Cause. I also participated in Detroit's first pagan newsletter, which was called The Magic Wand. And Juan was an acronym for the Witches Activist Network of Detroit. Nice. <laughs> yes. I did a little time with uh, the CUPS chapters, uh, the Covenant of the Unitarian Universalist Pagans. Uh, that was around the time we actually formed our circle, which was the Circle of Wonder Stories. And for a number of years throughout the 90s and the early 2000s, we were one of the two or three covens who actually performed a lot of the public rituals of the Detroit area. We had an annual Beltane uh, that lasted for over 11 years, uh, things like that. Eventually in the late 90s, I joined Covenant of the Goddess where I received my credentials. I was a credential priest. Uh, I left there in 2018, mostly to do a little soul searching. I'm getting ready to rejoin the Covenant. And one of my big things with the Covenant was being in the interfaith movement. And so I started working with uh, groups of Christians, Jews, Muslims, sometimes Hindus or Native Americans, and trying to defray more information about Wicca and paganism in general. And that's pretty much brings you up to stuff with me. Very cool. Yeah, thank you. So you did a class yesterday, the ISIS? Yes, the Cosmic Isis yeah. Ritual. Can, can you tell us a little bit about that? I wasn't yes. able to attend. So The Cosmic Isis Ritual is actually an evolvement from a personal ritual we did in the Circle of Wonder Stories. So it was a private ritual 
the concept was basically we did it on a particular eclipse of that year. I'm going to say it was mid-90s. I don't remember the exact year. It was in November. And what we wanted to do was a ritual that instilled more intuitive powers or psychic awareness and foster that idea within our coven. But then when I was thinking of presenting here, and this had gone on for a year or two, I really thought I would like to reframe that. And I was well known during the course of our earlier ritual work as doing a lot of guided meditations. It was always a really big feature part of our rituals where I would basically take us into a meditation, induce some trance states, uh, semi-hypnotic state, we would mm -hmm. call that, and go with the meditation. A lot of times they were more spontaneous, but eventually I also used a lot of other works that I came across, uh, Wicked Meditations uh, book, things like that, because I really felt like as a librarian type person, it's important to support these works. And if you're going to buy them, then you might as well use them. Mm -hmm. yep. So uh, I'm kind of a back and forth with being creative enough to write my own stuff, but also do that. So needless to say, with the Cosmic Isis this year, I wanted to work with something I hadn't worked with before, and that was probably the venerable queen of guided meditations, and that's Dolores Ashcroft Nowicki, who's written many books, uh, mostly spanning maybe perhaps more the New Age kind of thought. Uh, but uh, I found a particular book that had a number of workings or guided meditations from a number of disciplines, there were Celtic things, there were things that were a little bit more Norse, and then there was this one about the new Aeon. It was called The Changing of the Watchers. I, I called in my ritual the, to the new Aeon, and that was basically because I'm a very strong believer in us changing over from the age of a Pisces to the age of Aquarius. I feel that no astrologer I've ever talked to really knows when that date is it's kind of nebulous so we're not uh very strong with our astrology can okay. you tell us about the age of pisces and the age of aquarius ah that's a very good question because the age of pisces is the age of the approximate last 2500 years give or take maybe decades or 100 years depending on the astrology mm -hmm. you talk to but the age of pisces which pisces is symbolized by the fish swimming in opposite directions pisces itself has strong implications for institutionalized qualities. So it tends to represent in a person's chart those things that maybe are institutionally not necessarily always good. It's not necessarily a total adverse, so maybe some of my astrologer friends might differ. But I do feel that it's often epitomized also by the prison industry, the idea that people that are in those kind of institutions, or by extension, a number of other extensions, are not truly free, mm -hmm. are not truly liberated. Moving over into the age of Aquarius, which is the age of mankind, brotherhood, and things like that, represents a big change. We are moving from an era of contained, conform thinking to an age of more free thinking. Okay. Some people think that the age of Pisces represents the Christian era because, of course, Christianity has used the, the fish, fish right. for a very long time. And so the idea that we are changing or moving away from that means that possibly this is the end of the Christian era. I'm not necessarily a proponent for suggesting that's a real good thing that we should think about. I think that we're just all changing and adapting. And I think that Christianity will change too. 
hopefully to be better than it currently is, perhaps, mm -hmm. or unless you don't have a problem with it, then just better and better and better. Mm -hmm. So that's what the meditation is about, is really to symbolize that there are these archetypal, premiordal, perhaps, type beings. They're angelic, they're seraphim or cher cherubim, things like that. And they are sort of overseers of all of humankind. And so the meditation basically talked about how we say goodbye to those who did oversee the last aeon, and we welcome those who will be watching over the new aeon. Interesting. Yeah. Thank you. It's very, very interesting. The age of Aquarius to me has always been about music uh -huh. because, I mean, you know, the 60s. And I love the song. I'll sing if it won't shatter the. <laughs> <laughs> and I think part of it is like any of our listeners know I've been involved in the music industry for a very long time. And even though I wasn't really born, I was born in 68, so mm -hmm. I kind of missed that era. But musically, that that era of music's always called to me. I've always felt a, a very uh, huge affinity towards it, um, and still do, really. Uh, most you know, of the song lyrics I quote are from songs that nobody else knows. In the, the but, popular context, it seems like a lot of times we're talking about, in terms of paganism or witchcraft, that it's like every 20 years there's this bubble up of feeling towards it. The last one was maybe in the mid-90s when the craft movie came out mm -hmm. and there was a lot yeah. of exponential growth there. But if we go back into the late 60s, that was happening there too, because that was when the first descendants or the first persons associated with the British Gardnerian tradition came out. And all of a sudden you would look across America and there were a lot of things that were witchy then too. But back then, it wasn't as scary as it became in the 80s and it didn't become yeah. as sort of oh, the satanic panic. right? The yeah. satanic panic. Yeah. So in the 60s, we could watch Samantha and Bewitched, and, mm -hmm. and Dora was a little bit creepy, but ultimately she was kind of okay, you know. And we had other witches. We had Sabrina the Teenage Witch, and uh, moving forward, we saw other things in the 70s, too. I think there was a time, circa 1970, where every popular sitcom, maybe it was Room 222 or Gilligan's Island or something like that, might have had an episode about the witch. Yeah, the witch yeah, yeah. They were nearly always portrayed as more or less beneficent type persons who were not necessarily satanic at all. They might have had that trapping, oh, they're wearing black and they're mm -hmm. a little mysterious, but they weren't really talked about. They they weren't benefit. malevolent. Yeah. And they weren't really talked about. There, there was concept attached to them of that. That really kind of evolved more as we move towards the 80s because my personal feeling is that uh, the religious right was really ignoring a lot of this during the 60s and 70s and that certain other social forces probably started to galvanize their attention. Some of that could have been the things that happened in the 70s with, well, I'm forgetting now. <laughs> The idea that uh, there were civil rights uh, things that was more in the 60s. I'm thinking of the shooting in Ohio, and I can't think of it. Kent State. Thank you. Thank you. Things like that started to, in my opinion, galvanize the religious right to maybe start coming out of the woodwork and saying, well, these things happen because mm -hmm. nobody's obeying anymore. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. And so you're, think, you're breaking out of the out, out of confinement. Right. And they wanted to get us back to that tradition. And of course, by that time, the genie was truly out of the bottom. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think we're kind of in that. I think we're seeing that we're seeing now. seeing that pendulum swing again. Yeah. Yeah. So like you're seeing a, a lot of our television shows, especially with the advent of Netflix yes. and, and Hulu and that kind of stuff. You get Lucifer. Yeah. You get the chilling adventures of Sabrina. Yeah. We're seeing a, a, an interesting complication 
where witches and supernatural beings aren't being presented necessarily in a wholly negative light, but they're receiving a lot of negative veneer and then are, are having benevolent undertones. Right. It's a very yep. interesting like dichotomy that's happening right now. And I think that's the religious rights fighting back much yes. quicker this time. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, then I, if so like the TV show Good Omens. Yes. Right, which just based on Neil, a book that came out in the nineties. Yeah, Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett wrote this book and, and they've, they've made it into a, a television series now on Amazon. Yes. And we've watched it. Uh, Gwen and I have. Mm -hmm. and we, we loved it. We thought it was really well done. But there's been this huge thing where there's been a pushback from the religious right. And they've actually done a petition of like 20,000 signatures to have it removed. From Netflix. But they want to have it removed from Netflix, which it's not even on it's Netflix. It's not on Netflix. So they, you know they haven't even watched it. It's just a... It's pure rhetoric. Pure pure rhetoric. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yes. Exactly. Yep. It's something they haven't even seen. So I, I have a question for you. Vis-a-vis -vis Age of Aquarius, Age of Pisces, and not knowing where that I exact date is. I know you were going to ask this question. Not, not knowing what that exact date is. And you mentioned, you know, sort of every 20 years there's this surge, let's say. Is it possible that this changeover from the Age of Pisces to the Age of Aquarius is staggered? It's not like a specific... What the concept would be would be more that it's an overlap. Oh, okay. And that as we are moving into Aquarius, there is, and this is an astrological tendency too, because things are never necessarily all one thing there. I know it sounds too vague and flaky, but the idea that as we're moving out of that age of Pisces, there is resistance to that from those who were the most adherent to that. Right. And that who, would be who had people, the most to gain from the right. existing system. So one analogy I've heard, and of course, once again, it's not necessarily flattering, but that the age of Pisces is kind of like the church flopping around like a fish out of water, dying, gasping for breath, mm -hmm. just thrashing about. And that's what they're doing. They're thrashing about because they resent losing the culture or seeing this shift. Mm -hmm. And that's really what we see that. And as we move though more into Aquarius, whatever that may be, right. you know, more enlightenment will happen. Their voices are rather up and down, but I think that over the long course of this, I think we will finally see them just sort of shuck it off and go back to what they should do best, which is pray in their churches. Mm -hmm. And I have a good friend uh, who writes on a lot of columns. He writes uh, for the Wild Hunt. Um, very uh, intelligent person, uh, very involved in the CUPS administration. He feels that evangelicals and the religious right do this very secularly. They get very involved in the culture, and then they, when they realize that they're not really making any gains, they go back to what they do best, which is picnics and churches and hopefully good works. Right, yeah. Right, yeah. Uh, in an ideal state, uh, the Christian church is very useful. It provides useful uh, social safety nets that the government doesn't for whatever reason. <laughs> we know the reasons. It's capitalism. Well, it's about turning our government into uh, private entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. So basically, yeah, we, are privatizing out, we are handing out big bucks to all these churches and other organizations to do this stuff that maybe the government could do more efficiently mm -hmm. or at least a more strategized government. Mm -hmm. Right. We don't yeah. have that right now, of course. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. But in, a, in an ideal situation, a government could more efficiently handle these works, handle these safety nets, and then it wouldn't be a requirement for a religion to do it.
Well, history shows that it did happen that way, I think, and that, that what happens basically is people complain too much about those welfare queens mm -hmm. or that those persons who don't deserve that. And so then more people get involved in that mix and try to influence that opinion or create mm -hmm. legislation if they're a legislator. That kind of thing. Yes, somehow we attached morality to basic human needs. Yep. Yes. Somehow it became you needed to be morally pure in some way, in a in a capitalist approved way, to deserve housing and food and that we're going to hire a church to give you. Yeah, exactly. Right. It, Mariah, one of our listeners, just said uh, the idea behind uh, allowing churches tax exemption is because they were supposed to provide those services, mm -hmm. but they were supposed to provide those services out of their tithes and offerings that they receive. Exactly. Now they're getting tax exemption and they're getting government Rants funding the government. Yeah. to do it. So I think so. It's, uh, it's a big mix mash and it's probably not going to be resolved anytime soon because no. whenever there's too much money in something, that's the way it goes. And yeah. that's really kind of the same in paganism too, to some degree. So the cosmic ISIS ritual, yes. uh, attempting to move uh, the, the new Aeon, right? Um, is welcoming uh, the age of Aquarius? That was correct. That was actually what we did in the meditation. We went way out into the galaxy, and then we kind of looked at Earth and the galaxy from way above, and then we slowly came down in, and we saw these beings standing there, surrounded by a multitude of other angelic-type beings. And I know that in terms of angelic beings, in the more modern uh, Wiccan or Pagan era, I think that's been embraced a little bit mm -hmm. more. But I know that you could go back to maybe a decade or two back before that where people didn't want to really acknowledge that mm -hmm. necessarily. Maybe more in the 70s because it's angels, so therefore it's Christian. Right, it's, well, right. that's not exactly true. They're, they're angels perhaps in a, in a nomenclature kind of way, mm -hmm. but they're really beyond that. Yeah. And that's what I think my, my uh, meditation was trying to show. That's cool. That's very cool. Yeah. I wish I had been able to attend. Yeah. I yeah. wish so too. We had not that been was a very nice thing. We hadn't have been here. Yeah, doing this. <laughs> yes. and we are so glad you were here doing it. It's been such a pleasure being on your show. Thank you very much. We appreciate Absolutely you stopping no by. Yeah, and, we appreciate uh, you coming by and explaining some astrology stuff to us because every time someone comes by and talks to me about astrology, I'm like, please explain this in plain English with no math so I can understand. And, you know, that whole thing about being the techno-witch that I said, and now I'm a lot of, you know, it's like many years ago when I started doing astrology, I actually did work with the projector and the company oh used to do yeah. that. And I think I'm okay with doing that, but I think my main talent is somewhat interpretive. I am no astrologer, but I'm a lot better than the average person. What sign are you? Uh, I am a Virgo sun, and I don't know my moon or rising. Okay, so what date in Virgo? Are you a September or? Uh, September 3rd. Okay. Uh, well, you may be overly critical, but you're also highly able to focus and really just pursue things, maybe with a, a sense of less emotional quality brought to it. Like you can just be a straight shooter without necessarily bringing the emotion to it. Would you say that's accurate? That's a very accurate <laughs> response. So then your moon sign would probably support that as well, because your moon sign definitely can rule your, and influence your personality mm -hmm. or your intuitive abilities, things like that. So if you're not more you know emotional than maybe you have a moon sign that supports that maybe we'll talk sometime and i'll do a chart for you Ooh, that oh that'd be, be fun. great yeah, yeah. all right yep. you can have me back on and we'll talk about it yeah yes yeah if i if i get a moon chart from you i uh, will definitely have you back all on right. to explain Thank you very it. Much. <laughs> super you're welcome bye everybody bye, bye.